coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no more pain, no more parting over there, forever. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by but when he takes me by the hand and leads me through that promised land, what a day, oh glorious day that will be, oh what a day that will be, when my Jesus I when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, but when he takes me by the hand and leads me through that promised land, what a day, oh glorious day, This is one of the really great hymns of the Christian church. There are so many. Edward Barnes was a very prolific author of hymns. There's coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, a glorious day that will be. Now we are surrounded by such an abundance of noise that it's difficult not to be completely preoccupied with it. We think of noise as assaulting our hearing, uh, but there is a visual noise as well, and we should not forget to look ahead, especially during the closing scenes of this age. There is coming a day as a statement that will introduce light and proper perspective in these times of turbulence and upheaval. A few years ago, many, of, many were singing just a little longer, Sweet Jesus, although that was never one of the uh, serious songs of the church. 
But as the darkening of this age advances, even those people are more inclined to sing, There is Coming a Day. I'll share a few thoughts this morning on the process of preparation. Just as an introduction, just a few thoughts on the process of preparation. Many times I have set aside a day to prepare a podcast or a teaching, only to conclude that day without anything to share. We can present ourselves before the Lord, but until He calls us, we will simply wait. Presenting ourselves is necessary to obtain the quiet of soul, necessary to hear thoughts in addition to our own. Often while considering various interpretations of Scripture, as I often do in preparation, I have been pained by the contrasting conclusions of human understanding being laid upon the sacred text. How can such conflicting doctrines be permitted to mar the beauty of God's revelation? On one such occasion, the following thoughts appeared. The sacred text of Scripture is holy ground, and those who would enter upon it must remove the shoes from off their feet. That ground is the place where God speaks and man listens. Man is not called there to walk around as he wills, interpreting what he sees in ways that make sense to his natural mind. This is a place of revelation as Moses experienced at the burning bush and that John Bunyan understood while introducing his readers to the person of the interpreter. And so the old expression, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, is sadly often true. Do we read our Bibles with all due reverence and wait upon God the interpreter to show us the place and explain it to us? Education has great value while it yields to this principle. God also speaks to us by means of his creation. But even then, it is essential that we take our shoes off. Nothing that originates with man must come between God and us. And we are responsible to hear his prompt and remove the man-made. My place of study overlooks the river which connects Lake Superior to Lake Huron. And large Upbound freighters routinely navigate this river, temporarily obscuring the USA island of Nebish as they slowly glide past. And as they proceed upriver, they leave a wide wake behind them. Today, I noticed another V-shaped wake, a much smaller one, but it was approaching my location from the island of Nebish. My binoculars revealed the cause. A family of geese was swimming toward me. A large gander appeared to be leading with with a goose trailing behind. But between them were about 20 young ones, and they were all leaving the USA and coming home to Canada. And they're named Canada geese for a reason. Now, when one is waiting upon the Lord and you see something like that, all kinds of opportunity for insight and spiritual teaching suddenly come to mind. God speaks through his design in creation. Immediately following that, I heard a strange noise from another room. A huge bumblebee, I I mean a giant bumblebee, was inside a large window, desperately searching for a way to escape to the outside. This is a very old building that I'm in. This is a very old building. It has portals that we know not of. So who knows how he got in? I say he. I refer to him as he because she would have gone out the same way she entered. 
So he would tire from useless effort and eventually he would just die. So I knew that and I don't always rescue bumblebees, but on that particular occasion, after having just witnessed what I saw with regard to the family of geese coming home, the moment seemed to move me in a manner of compassion towards this bumblebee. And so I I went to the kitchen and I got a glass and I had a rigid piece of paper to cover the bottom of the glass and it just happened to be an offering envelope that I found that was rigid. It needed to be used for something. And so and so I went and I rescued the bumblebee, closing the opening with the offering envelope, took him outside, released him. Away he flew. As he flew away, and I watched him go, and first thought came to my mind is, he didn't even say thank you. And so it began to percolate a lesson in theology, and I began to think in terms of the compassion that I felt toward the bumblebee. And I said, uh, you know, his rescue and his deliverance was all of me, all of me. It had nothing to do with him. He did not do anything at all with regards to this. But my compassion, moved with compassion, and the rescue was, the deliverance was all of me. There was no thank you. As far as I could discern, nothing was learned by the bumblebee. He may return and do the same thing again in some future date. But he was rescued from a death and that was self-inflicted by himself. He got himself into that predicament and he needed to be rescued from be rescued by someone else. He could not rescue himself. So then I began to think in terms of salvation and I began to reason as follows. I began to say, well then salvation is all of God. It's all of God and nothing of me. And he has foreordained my salvation through the atonement of Christ. Those whom he foreknew, foreordained, he rescued, made atonement for. I began to think along these lines. And I began to think in terms we have been elected to be some have been elected to be rescued, and if not, then they would be lost. And as I was continuing to think along these lines and ponder this a little bit, then I then this came into the screen. You know, I always talk in terms of thought steps because I'm a great observer of the reality that we think in progressive ways as we walk by steps. And so I see thought steps that we take. So the next step in my thought progression was, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are not a bee. You have not been made in the likeness of a bee. But you have been made in the likeness and the image and the likeness of God. The bee was not made that way, but you have been made in the image and likeness of God. You did not provide for your own rescue. God did that by himself. But you were made with choice for a reason that you would choose your deliverer and turn again and thank him by a complete surrender of yourself to him. This is ultimate freedom and you've been called to this kind of freedom. And so this morning my intention is not just to talk about um, geese coming home to Canada or about bumblebees, but I use that as a little bit of introduction just to illustrate that the Time of preparation it can be very unusual and many things can happen. And so let me proceed now for the main thought for the morning, which is 
to contrast between Matthew 24 and verse 7, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7, contrasted with Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Matthew 24 and verse 3 begins as follows. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? Then if I move quickly ahead to verse 7. And Jesus speaking to his disciples. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. It's verse 7 that I want to look at and compare. So nation shall rise against nation. The word is ethnos, and it means people, means race, means a multitude. And it has a special reference to people who belong to each other, live together with each other, with one another. And this can apply to races as well, or ethnic groups. And then Jesus said, in kingdom against kingdom, and the word for kingdom is basically the idea of a royal dominion, a kingdom, a royal dominion, or the right of rule from a king. And so Jesus said, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Not that they will exist simply, but that they will rise up against one another. And this points to ethnic division and tribal allegiances that escalate to violent confrontation, where allegiance is pledged on the basis of group identity and not on the higher ideals of, can't we all just get along? All efforts of man to build a multicultural, cohesive society will become like Humpty Dumpty and efforts to restore will fail. The strong will impose themselves on the weak and the God of forces will be worshipped. Now this is happening now in a kind of blitzkrieg of social upheaval. The people of God in the Old Testament were promised favor as they entered the promised land. I'll read from Deuteronomy 11 and 25. And God said to them, There shall no man stand before you, for Jehovah your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon the face of all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said to you, or as he has promised you. He's going to put a fear of you on all the people. The people in the land will vastly outnumber you or greatly outnumber you. But I, the Lord your God, will put a fear of you on them, so they will be afraid of you. Now, we are witnessing a strange and tragic, evil version of this beginning now. Violent mobs are allowed to impose themselves in the most powerful nation in the world, while authorized law enforcement stands aside. We see this deferential bowing of the head and knee to anarchists at all levels of society and government. Can we not conclude that an unseen spiritual permission is being handed to the mob by those in positions of authority. Fear of the mob is spreading. Something catastrophic is happening now and appears to be growing in a multinational dimension. Now, the battle is being waged in the United States of America. Not that it is not other places. But among the places you would likely not expect it to be waged in this way 
In those places it is being waged, and among those places is the United States of America, and the mob is being used by leftist and progressive efforts to reorganize the nation. The shocking thing is the high level of support this movement appears to have. Considerable ground has been lost to this misguided insurgency, and that will not be retaken easily. The ground that is being lost now will not be retaken easily. This enemy to the essence of Americanism can be defeated. This is this what is happening is an enemy to the essence of Americanism. I'm a Canadian, but I know what Americanism is. And Americans are my neighbors, very close. In some cases, members of my family. I understand the history of the United States of America. And I understand what it means to be an American. And this, what is happening now, is an enemy to Americanism. And it can be defeated. But the cost to do so is rapidly rising. I could say so much more on this, but I will just say that much for right now. There's only one provision for success in a multicultural society. Only one. And that provision is Jesus, the Messiah. He welcomes us as individuals without regard to all the natural divisions of ethnicity or gender. Our subsequent unity is in Him and entirely due to Him. His love in and through us forms us into a body in which all the members suffer and rejoice together. One member suffers, the others suffer with it. If one member rejoices, the others rejoice with it. A picture of the unity possible among the nations, tribes, and kingdoms is revealed in Revelations chapter 7, especially verses 9 through 12. Listen to what John saw. This unity among diversity that only our Lord Jesus is able to achieve. Reading again chapter 7, Revelation verse 9. After these things I looked, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, out of all nations, and kindreds and people and tongues. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, sitting on the throne and to the Lamb. Now before I continue with the next couple of verses, let me just say this. You see diversity and you see unity. All nations gathered from among all the nations and peoples and tongues and tribes. And so they have all this diversified background where they came from. But they are completely one and unified in terms of they're all clothed with white robes. Every one of them has a white robe. Each of them has have palms in their hands. And they all say with a loud voice in unison, salvation to our God, sitting on the throne and to the Lamb. So you have diversity, you have unity. Now this is what happens. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying amen. Oh my. What did they say amen to? They said amen 
to what the great multitude had said. And the multitude had said with a loud voice, Salvation to our God, sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the elders and the angels, the four living creatures, said, Amen. So be it. That's true. We agree. And then they said, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so you can observe the, the uh, diversity and you can observe the unity. I'll continue reading Revelations chapter 7, verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these who are arrayed in white robes? And from where do they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and have whitened them in the blood of the Lamb. Notice, whitened their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Normally, if you were to take a robe and dip it in blood, it would be red. But in this instance, as they dipped their robes in the blood of the Lamb, the robes became white. In verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he sitting on the throne will dwell among them. Now this passage of scripture has been the inspiration for so many sermons and teachings and also hymns. It would be towards the middle of the 19th century, sometime around 1860, 1866, sometime in there. A marvelous hymn was written by Phoebe Palmer. It was called The Cleansing Wave. I uh, have read a considerable amount about the ministry of Phoebe Palmer, her husband Walter, their trips to the British Isles, and uh, I have read a considerable amount with regards to her writings. And I would say that without question, she's one of the most able advocates of the doctrine of entire sanctification. John Wesley saw it. John Wesley taught it. John Wesley wrote about it. But I know of no one who was able to write about it more clearly than Phoebe Palmer did. Now she's this hymn. She wrote a few hymns. This is, this is a marvelous hymn. Listen to a verse and, and the refrain. Oh, now I see the crimson wave, the fountain deep and wide. Jesus, my Lord, mighty to save, points to his wounded side. The cleansing stream, I see, I see. I plunge, and oh, it cleanseth me. Oh, praise the Lord, it cleanseth me. It cleanseth me. Yes, cleanseth me. Now, there is great theology in this, as in all of the writing of Phoebe Palmer. And I see in this refrain... I see something that is spectacular. And what it does is it, in the refrain, is it illuminates and illustrates the part that we do and the part that we cannot do. You know, to go back with the analogy and the comparison of the bumblebee and the wait a minute now, wait a minute, you're not a bumblebee and you're not made in the image of a bumblebee. 
You're made in the image and likeness of God. And he gave you choice for a reason. Listen to the refrain. The cleansing stream, I see, I see. Now these two expressions, both I see, I see, are exclamation. She exclaims in these words. It's, It's with great emotion. It's The idea is when you've tried to see something for a long period of time, you're tempted to understand it. Maybe this has happened in your in your journey where you've tried to and wanted to understand something and you heard it and heard it, but you never could really understand it. And then one day the Lord opened it up to you and you became so excited and you said, I see it. I see it. That's in the lyrics of the first line of the refrain. The cleansing stream, I see, I see. Now the next part is something that the person now who has been able to see does. Now, when when it says, I see, I see, it doesn't mean that you do that all by yourself. It means that the mighty Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit reveals this to you. But the point is, as he reveals it and shows it to you, you see it. Now, there's something that you do as you see it. And the next line is, I plunge. I plunge. But now from the rest of it, it's not anything that I can do. I see, I see, I plunge. And oh, it cleanses me. I cannot cleanse myself. It cleanses me. What cleanses me? The crimson wave. And then to conclude the refrain, Oh, praise the Lord, stressing it and saying it again, It cleanseth me. And then it says it again, It cleanseth me. Yes, it cleanseth me. Four times. Now there is coming a day when the beauty of Revelation 7 will replace man's failed efforts to perfect his experiment in self-government. The church in the world is intended to manifest this cleansing stream. And in those times and places in which Mrs. Palmer's lyrics are fully experienced, the result previews, previews, Revelations chapter 7. Look again at the contrast between between Matthew 24, 7 and Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. We can see Matthew 24 and 7 all around us. But we need to look forward to the coming day to see fully and clearly what we have so longed, what we have so long yearned for. There is coming a day when no heartaches shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. I began with Edward Barnes' hymn. I will close with the hymn penned by Phoebe Palmer. Both are wonderful and in no small part, each of them is inspired by Revelations chapter 7. But before I play the hymn in closing for you, I am uh, very much inclined this morning to close with this blessing. And this is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. It's Aaron's blessing. And I'm going to uh, offer you this blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, In this way you shall bless the sons of Israel, saying to them, Jehovah bless you and keep you. Jehovah make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Jehovah lift lift up his face to you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.